one. Hello, you're listening to Perpetual Learning. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, and we're going to take a look at a cool set of letters today. These are not like the letters of, of a poet, uh, like Emily Dickinson's letters, but they're kind of cool, nevertheless. Yeah, I'm Sudan Siva, and the, the letters are the ones that Nomad Investment wrote to their partners and investors over a decade, and it's a lot of wealth in there. Mm, excuse the pun, right? Did you plan that? I like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's fascinating with these letters is you, you start reading them, you get the little preamble at the top, and then the next two two letters that they have are these back and forth letters between the the founders and Warren Buffett. So, so needless to say, yeah. um, you know certainly grabs you right off the start. So, you know what? Let's kick this off. I've got a ton of questions for you. Um, these letters were not meant to be released to the general public. At least that's what I noticed in the preamble uh, that they wrote. But but after a couple of bootleg copies had made their way around, the founders themselves released the letters. So we'll we'll get to that in a minute. But first, who and what is Nomad? Yeah, so Nomad Investment Partners, you know, it's a very successful investment fund run by Nick Sleep and Quay's Deck area. And, you know, the two partnered up initially under the Marathon umbrella. And then from 2001 to 2014, really did well in the market. They made several successful investments, uh, notably getting in on Costco before it really gained traction, I'd say, over the past, you know, few years. And, and you know, getting in, again, relatively early into Amazon as well. And, as far as value investors go, they're an incredible success story. And you know, more importantly, the letters really provide insight into what it takes to be successful as, an, as a value investor. How successful were they? Like, what is, what is their track record? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, they average you know, around 20% annual returns for the better part of 13 years and consistently grew their fund to the tune of, you know, $2 billion by the time they were done. So, you know, very, very successful uh, wow. investors in my mind. Wow. Yeah. Those are, those are great returns. Now what's interesting about these letters is that they seem to have a bit of a cult following. Um, what are these letters, first of all, and, and what is in them? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think anytime you have the track record that these guys have had, you know, you're bound to see a following build around them. The, the letters essentially came out every six months um, throughout their journey and, and really went deep into select investments each time. So you end up learning a lot about different businesses with, you know, no real correlation. And, and you, you know, as you read these letters, you really start to understand the characteristics that they were looking for. Hmm. Now you've combed through these letters, actually not combed. I think you read like hundreds of pages of them. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you had to summarize the reasons for their success in three bullet points, what would they be? I think, you know, and they harp on this and really, you know, drive this point. It, you know, it really comes down to being very disciplined and patient when it comes to price. So, you know, especially waiting for the opportunities where in their minds, they can really buy an asset at 50 cents on the dollar. And the second was 
going beyond the heuristics and taking the time to understand the quality of management and the sustainability of returns behind the business. And this often requires a layer of thinking that most funds or investments don't have today. You know, that I found really interesting. Um, the idea that they're digging in that deep and that most uh, investors may not be doing that. Do you think that's true? That people don't, don't do that kind of diligence? Absolutely. I think it's more true today than, you know, years before. But I think, you know, and, and you know, this goes into their, you know, into some of their uh, themes where they talk about the dysfunctionality of short-term investors and, and the challenges that come from there. What are those dysfunctions? I mean, I think we, we hear about this all the time, right? That, that, yeah. that you've got to be super savvy to be successful as a short-term investor and to a certain degree, uh, lucky, I think. Um, what do they say about it? I think, it, I mean, it comes down to investors working with reduced timeframes and relying on high level heuristics. Let's take, you know, price to earnings or, you know, EV to EBITDA multiples to make investment decisions. And as more people do this, you end up seeing more volatility where the highs and lows are more extreme because you're making decisions. And ultimately, a crowd of people are making decisions based on high level information versus paying attention to the business and actually forming an independent view of the business. Mm. Now there's there's more to this than than just buying at the right price. They talk about doing um you know deep research in, in subjective areas like the quality of management so that they could foresee a capital allocation or um or predict the ability for the company to create sustainable value. Break that down for me. I mean it goes hand in hand, right? Like the the way you determine what the right right price might be is by doing everything else that you talked about, right? So it's going beyond the P&L, taking the time to research and understand the management strategy, market, you know, barriers to entry, competitive dynamics. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but ultimately, you know, as you know, this fund has shown, it, it tends to pay off. A lot of this information, you know, with that said, can only be gathered by following the business over a long period of time, months, if not years. And having conversations with the right people, forming a thesis, and then determining, relatively speaking, what the right price might be. And then you make decisions accordingly. Now, they mentioned something called the robustness ratio. This is a term that I'm not familiar with. Um, what is it? Yeah, it's a, you know, more or less a self-defined term by Sleep. And he, he defines this as the amount of money a customer saves compared to the amount earned by shareholders. Why is that important? What is their take on on this ratio and, and why it matters? Yeah, it's an interesting view. I think, you know, typically the higher quality businesses tend to have a high robustness ratio where the customer is getting a lot of value out of the business relative to any of the other stakeholders. However, Sleep kind of makes a distinction where you know, he talks about how companies need to strike the right balance between investors, customers, and employees. And there tends to be a few perverse outcomes if it swings too far 
in any one direction. And I think, you know, ultimately you do want to have a healthy customer profit ratio, so to speak, so that, you know, there are relatively high barriers to entry for other competitors and, you know, just a general defensibility and stickiness um, to the overall business. Who do you think, um, you seem to have liked, liked the, the, the letters. Who do you think should be reading this? Like, who would you recommend this to? I think, you know, it, it's really geared towards investors. I think if you're not a investor or at least don't have an interest in investing, I think it, it would be difficult to really uh, power through all those pages. But, you know, anyone really interested in either investing or just understanding how businesses work um, should, should really, you know, take a look through because, you know, they take more of an independent perspective and, and you know, allow you to kind of look at businesses and, and understand businesses from a different lens um, versus the general public. What's your biggest takeaway from the letters for, for life outside of investments? Yeah, I mean, a few things come to mind. I think, you know, typical, you know, typical takeaway from any of the learnings or, you know, letters from, you know, very renowned value investors is the power of patience and playing the long game. I think, uh, I'd also add that the impact of writing, both as a tool to reflect, share learnings, and ultimately form more of a timeless piece or legacy that gains a life of its own. I think, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of folks won't be fully aware of the Nomad Investment Fund and, and the work that uh, Sleep and Zakaria did if it weren't for these letters. So it really, you know, amplifies the legacy of the fund itself and ultimately looks like has carried a life of its own. What's also interesting because what you're getting is their thinking at that point in time without it being a cleaned up version like two or three years later based on the performance of that of that uh, particular investment, which is sometimes the problem that I have in, in memoirs. It's like, I, I sometimes wonder, well, have you changed this particular scene or this particular picture based on what you know now. You know what I mean? For sure. I mean, there's more of a you know, tendency to build a story in hindsight when you're reading those types of uh, you know, memoirs or, or you know, books or articles or whatever the case might be versus, you know, this is, to your point, more of an artifact, right, where you can kind of understand what they were doing in real time to the extent that it's possible. And uh, really take away from the learnings there. Buffett letters are, are, you know, have a similar dynamic, right? Where uh, obviously over a much longer period of time, but still incredibly helpful to read through, especially some of his early letters where, you know, I think he was a bit more transparent in his process and everything that was going on and, and the way he was thinking. Of course, because at that point they didn't have the two billion. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I had a takeaway um from just I just read the start of it. I didn't do all whatever 200 pages or whatever you did. But there was this this par- paragraph in the preamble that that I actually uh, it really kind of took me by surprise the emotion I had reading it. I I'm, I'm going to read it out to you. Um so here goes. Uh, and these are their words in the preamble to the letters. Investing is a wonderful, thoughtful adventure, but it can also be self-centered, a tendency that can be reinforced by the wealth that can follow. 
we think it is true that once past X amount, real meaning comes with reinvesting in society through charitable giving, which can also be a thoughtful, challenging, wonderful adventure, but with the added bonus that it feels like the world is working properly. We hope that you can join us. That's the end of it. And um, I don't know. It just got me thinking. I just... I just found it very profound and I found it admirable that they had included um this paragraph uh in this yeah. in this I mean thing it shows that- a strong level of uh self awareness, right? And you know, just again goes to kind of show, you know, their uh changes in it, their change in how they looked at the world and ultimately what pushed them towards, you know, going down the charity and the non profit space from investing which is where they went. And I think what it also does is they know that the people that, that are reading this either have wealth or will have incredible wealth, possibly. So because of that, in a way, they're also influencing all of those people. Anyway, just, just something that I took away, and it's a paragraph that I will be thinking about through the week. So, hey, are we on again next week? Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Talk next week. Yep. See ya.